Hello and welcome to Spooks. That's Spooks with a B and not with a P, because if we used a P, the BBC would probably sue us. Today, I am talking to Anna Matsola, who I have met, uh, how many times have we met? Two, two or three times, Anna? Yeah, two or three times at Bloody Scotland, I think. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I write, of course. Yeah, um, and and Anna has has written a couple of of really incredible books, um, and again we're we're back into to historical fiction in in many ways. Uh, last week I spoke to uh, Re- Re- Rebecca Matzel, and mm. uh, yeah. So and today it's Anna. So how how are you doing? How am I doing? I'm I'm yeah. all right. I'm still I'm still going. It's a, it's a very strange time, isn't it? And we're all, when we were just talking about where you live, because I live in South London, which is a, a very busy place. So I just went out this morning. I went out quite early-ish for a run and it's just absolutely packed out there. So it's, uh, yeah, really? it's odd, odd times. But, I mean, um, just people walking about or, or yeah, running? People, I ended or... up having to run on the road because there's people walking along, people cycling. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of nice, but... Um, I sort of envy you being able to just go for a walk and not seeing anyone at the moment. Yes, yes. Just, just yeah. to explain, if anybody doesn't know, I live in a, a fairly remote part of, of southwest Scotland. And um, so I, I can see, I, I can go without seeing people for days on end. So this is all quite, you know, I'm quite used to it. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sailing through this lockdown, apart from my hair seems to be growing at an incredible rate. Oh, the hair, <clears throat> I, the hair. Yes. We, 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 we cut my poor son's hair a couple of weeks ago and he's um right. he's nine so he doesn't really understand what it is that we've done to him but he'll see the photographs in years to come and and probably develop a vendetta against <laughs> dial child so, lane retrospectively yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, sad. but anyway we're all in the same we're on the same boat bad hair so how how are you faring in lockdown though? What are you still working? Because in addition to being a, a, an author, you you're a solicitor as well. I am, yes, and um, I mean I won't go into too much into what I do because it's no, a bit depressing no. at the moment. But I, I I do sort of cases arising from the criminal justice system, and I act mainly for victims of crime. Um, so yeah, I am very much still working at the moment. Um, but uh, I have two small children as well. So yes. that that has been fun. Uh, yes. To, yes. To, that that was Mickey, who always Hello, makes Mickey. an appearance. Hello, <laughs> I, Mickey. I, I, How I keep... you doing? Mickey's like, <laughs> you may have children, but Doug has a dog, and I want everyone to know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you've got, two, you've got two children, two cats, and a husband. Uh, no, unfortunately, unfortunately, poor old George the cat died last year. We've still got him on our mantelpiece, but but no, oh. we're, we're down to well, we're down to one cat. I say, but actually, we've got a beautiful new cat who's arrived in our garden. So we've got at least two cats. Only one of them isn't really ours. Um, yeah, and in fact, it, it, I've been doing work calls through Zoom, like the rest of the world, and mine usually get interrupted by my children, whereas my boss's dog usually shows up on hers. So it's kind of you know, there are some parts of the lockdown that are nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they do say that about cats that the the word will go in the feline fraternity um, that there is a vacancy. So, and, well, very uh, much so. In fact, it was very because George, my my cat, was was a black cat, and he died um, on Halloween, thus outgothing us all. And within about a month, because George always used to, I used to hear a meowing, and it would be George at the window wanting me to let him in. Um, and I heard a meowing about a month after he died and I looked up and there was another black cat. So I think you're right. I think word had got out. George is gone. 
the vacancy for a blue cat, another black cat is open. Very, very yeah. peculiar. Yep. Somewhere a cat is waiting for you. Somewhere a cat is and waiting. It's reassuring. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right. Let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about your books now. The first book, uh, your first one was the Unseeing. Do you yeah. want to tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So that yeah, that was my debut novel. It was the first novel I ever wrote, actually. So I was very lucky to get it published. Um, and the idea from that for that came from the suspicions of Mr. Witcher, which I'm sure lots of people will have read. And it's um, mentions very early on the murder of a woman in Camberwell, which is where I live. So I ended up looking it up and become very, very interested in that woman who was convicted together with her lover of this crime in 1837. And that became the basis of a short story, which then went on to become my first novel, The Unseeing. So it's all about um, this woman and, you know, did, did she commit the crime she was accused of or were there other reasons for her going along with it during the trial? So that it sort of became a, an exploration of that. So that's I mean, it seems about a million years ago, but I think that was 2016 that came out. Um and yeah. and yes, it's uh, it's and I'm in fact looking up right now at the, the, the my husband did a very sweet thing when I had my first book published, which was that he managed to find a sketch um, from the old Bailey of Sarah Gale and James Greenacre, the two main characters in my book or two of the main characters um, from the time of the trial. So I can look it up, up at it from my writing desk, which is rather lovely. And this was the was it the Edgware Road murder? Was that That's right. Yes, it became known as the Edgware. Edge, it was a rather grisly one. Um, he James Greenacre hid the body parts all around London, thinking this would mean that no one ever worked it out. Of course, they did. Um, but the head was found uh, in a river near Edgware Road, which is why it became. Sorry, no, that was the that was under a paving slab by the Edgware Road. The second the second bit was in the, the head was in a river, um, so that's why it became known as the Edgware Road murder. But it was actually committed in Campbell in South London. So it covers all of London. It's very, um, very cosmopolitan. So, so you grafted a, I mean, you, you took the facts and, and grafted a fictional story uh, yes. out of this. What are the challenges in, in creating fiction out of fact? Oh, many. I mean, it was, because, I, I, you know, when you start off writing, you have no clue. Um, and I somehow thought that if I was using a real story, it would somehow make it easier because, you know, the bare bones of the story are already there. But that's before I'd really worked out that history is not the story. The story is really about the characters and their arcs and the way they change over the course of the novel. So I started off with really a novel that was not really a novel that was more sort of um, semi nonfiction. And in fact, it started off with a trial because obviously I'm a lawyer. So to me, trials are desperately exciting. But when um, the woman who eventually came with my, my agent, Juliet Mushton's first read it, she said, Anna, you can't start with a trial. <laughs> like no, no one else wants to read the trial, Anna. So what I ended up doing was moving it a lot further away from the facts and focusing a lot on, on you know, more on the development of the characters. Um, which is, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, if anyone listening is is considering writing a novel based on real facts, I think you have to think quite carefully about what your own rules are for yourself. I think I started off thinking that I was somehow going to be like Margaret Atwood and in Alias Grace, in the, the afterward to Alias Grace, which is one of my favourite books, she says something like, you know, where there were gaps in the history, I felt like I could invent and otherwise I felt I had to stick to it. So I started off thinking, well, I should do that. But of course, Margaret Atwood is Margaret Atwood. Um, 
and she can do that whereas for the rest of us it's uh you have to make you know you have to find your own way and I ended up diverging far more widely from the real story than than I originally had because the real story just wasn't twisty enough to kind of meet with the expectations of the crime genre you know crime readers they're used to working it out for themselves and having twists and having you know the excitement and the suspense and in actual fact in the real history of it you work out fairly on what really happened which is absolutely no use in a crime novel so yeah. it became something rather different so I mean it all paid off because the the, the book won an Edgar awards in the, in the US it did and it was a yeah. I mean I was so stupid I didn't go so to the award ceremony because I didn't know that I'd won and I couldn't believe that I would have won and everyone said to me you must go you must go and I said well, I can't go you know expensive I can't leave my kids and now I just wish I'd gone um, but anyway I didn't go and I won which meant that two weeks after the event um, a package arrived in the post and I opened it and there before me was the China head of Edgar Allan Poe which was oh. yeah it's quite quite a moment and does yeah. that has that got pride of place on the mantelpiece or shamefully no it's currently behind the tv um, what yes I know I wait I, yeah I think probably if you've got like a whole row of them then it's acceptable to have sort of a shelf <laughs> but just the china head of Edgar Allan Poe just doesn't really go with the rest of my furniture so I'm afraid he's currently slightly out of view so how, how did I you like find knowing out, he's there. Sorry, carry on. How did you find, sorry, how did you find out what you, you had won? Did somebody send you an email? Someone or told me, or? somebody told me, I think I can't, because it, it must have happened at about five o'clock in the morning, our time, yeah. and I woke up to about a million messages on, on Twitter and Facebook of people telling me that I'd won. It was really, it was just so lovely. I mean, you know what the crime community are like. They're just such a lovely, supportive bunch. Um so there were lots of people, you know, messaging me to congratulate me. And, yeah, it was a really, it was a lovely thing. But I wish to God that I'd gone. Never, never mind. One day, one day well, we'll be allowed out again. I'll go back. Yes, to yes. But it wasn't. Mm. I mean, you were also nominated for the Historical Writers Association's debut crown. Uh, yes, but that wasn't in, well. in New York. It wasn't, yeah. No, no, that was, that was here. That, yeah. that was here. Yeah. But no, it, it's, nice. it's always nice. Thing. It's always good to have your. I mean, it would be great to win, but it's always great to have your work acknowledged and, and nominated for for awards. Oh yeah, it makes um, a huge difference. And you know, if yeah. I mean, I think it makes. You know, I don't know how much of a difference it makes to sales unless your publisher really gets behind it and pushes it. But just in terms of our own sort of morale and yes. keeping going and confidence, yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah, you rely on the publishers to do it, and also the the bookstores themselves to to get behind these things. But it's still it's, yeah. it's a good. It's a good, it's a good confidence booster to know that, is, that your work has been, been recognised as being somehow worthy. Uh, what about research? Um, what, what kind of research did you do for for the unseeing in particular, and and oh, where did you go? Huge amount. I mean, because yeah, as I said, the unseeing was my first novel, and I had no idea what I was doing. I in fact did far too much research. I I'm probably researched it for about two years or I mean well I was I wrote it while I was working pretty much full time but you know in the evenings I'd research so I ended up researching all sorts of things that weren't really necessary but which I found interesting and far more uh well far easier than writing a book so I sort of researched the whole of the you know criminal justice system in the 19th century the situation of women in the 19th century that the crime itself I did a huge amount of research into um and the way which I mean it's fascinating because that 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 era, sort of 1937, this is this is the dawn of sort of investigative policing, but it's also the time when 
um, crime as entertainment is really coming to the fore. So that's when really the penny bloods um, are being released. That's when, uh, you know, hanging was it was a great sport, a great day out for the family. And there's a there's a fascinating book by Judith Flanders. Her name, um, but it's all about it's about crime as entertainment and how it all began in the 19th century. So I became really fascinated by that and did huge amounts of research of, on that. And to be honest, only tiny bits of it ended up in the book. Yeah. Um, so and 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 the old Bailey online, you can get all of the old transcripts, which is amazing. And I also managed to get hold of the magistrates' court notes as well. So I mean, I spent a long, long time researching it and decided that for for subsequent books I do I think do what Tracy Chevalier says she does which is she does some broad research at the beginning in order to work out what she's writing about then she sort of sketches it out and works out what she needs to know in order to write the book then she writes the book and then she does the additional research that she needs because otherwise you could just with historical novels you could just research for years and years and never actually write the wretched book yeah, you um, could you you could go down the rabbit hole. Oh, um, all the time. Yeah, I have to switch off the Wi-Fi to stop myself from going down the rabbit holes and just sort of make myself a note that I must look at that later. Otherwise, you know, years pass and you're still researching some obscure terminology. And yeah, yeah you need so to. What do you pre- do, do? You prefer the research to the actual writing? Uh, well, I find it a lot easier. It's you know you can just read a book and make notes on it rather than having to create your own characters and create the plot it's much it's a you know it's a different pr- I mean I, I, I you know I, I joke on Twitter etc about how I hate writing I in fact love writing and in fact the fact that I'm not writing at the moment because I just don't really have time has made me realize how much I do need to write um, in order to just think properly I think so I, I, I find the research easier but I, I think you know the writing is is what's at the heart of it and is why I'm doing it um, they're two very different processes. In fact, I think Janet Ellis was talking about how um, her research, she treat, treats it as sort of closed cupboards. So when you're writing the book, you might dip into the cupboard and just use a tiny bit of it. But most of the time it's just there in the cupboard and you know that it's there, but you don't use it. I think yes. it's quite a good way because you can, you know, you've read the books where the writer has clearly done a lot of research and has decided to shoehorn as much as they can into the book. Um, yes. You can always yes. tell when they've done that. It's... Um, it's kind of trying to find a sort of light touch way of doing it, I think. Yeah. I'll tell you what I hate when I, I'm reading um, a book is, is footnotes. Um, <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> uh, they, they really, really annoy me. And also um, end notes as well, because my mm. view is that if it's, a, if it's that important to include, then put it in the text. Yeah. Uh, and don't don't pull me out. Even if it's a non-fiction book, don't pull me out of the reading experience. I see. I, I agree. I totally agree about footnotes because the whole point of reading fiction is that you want to be sucked into the story, and you certainly don't want someone pointing out midway through that something isn't quite accurate. Unless, of course, the footnotes are part of the story. You know, they're part of the way that the story is written. Um, but and I mean, and I do tend to put kind of short historical notes in my books. I partly sort of as a caveat to explain that I I have diverged from the truth. Yes, to be honest. yes, but that that's at the end. That's at the end. But you don't you don't yeah. refer to them through you know you know within the text. No. So the notes are at the end as like an author's note to explain you know what you've yes. done and why you've done it, where, where you've got it from. Uh, but I'm talking about when you get a note, you know the end notes, and there's a wee number 
Uh, side sense. Then you've got. Why have they put that there? So they're pulling you out the reading experience. This is an academic thing. Academics have a reason for doing it. Yeah, but yeah, you, but you're right. Within the story, when you're, when you're reading to be entertained or or, or informed, just as a, an ordinary person like me, the last thing you want is to be pulled out of the experience. No, absolutely. That, yeah, especially at the moment, I'm finding because I, I I don't know about you, but I find I, I'm getting better now. But certainly at the beginning of the outbreak and all the news, I just couldn't read for longer than about ten minutes without checking my phone. So I've really? kind of I've I'm now reading. I mean, I've actually I'm reading more because I I tend to read a mix of stuff normally. You know, crime, historical fiction, non-fiction, all sorts of things. I've been mainly reading crime. Actually, I've gone back to some of the the classics. I'm actually reading Barbara Vine, and I found this um. This great guy called Maurizio Di Giovanni. I don't know if you've heard of this. So they, they, these are crime novels set in the in Naples in the 1830s, and they're quite short, but they're just—I don't know—they just—they well, just managed to capture my imagination. You could just immerse yourself in them for a few hours. It's. What I, I like short. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, like shamefully. <laughs> I've only got halfway through um, the latest Hilary Mantel, The Mirror and the Light. And I just I know it's an amazing, amazing book, but my attention is just so shot at the moment yeah. that I can't I deal with anything that long and detailed. And I just needed something that I could just completely immerse myself in for a few hours. I have absolutely no focus at the moment. It's, it's very, yeah. very difficult. Now, you, you mentioned your Twitter feeds. Now, I've told you before that, that your Twitter feed is, is probably one of the most entertaining that I've ever read. Oh, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, you know it, it does disguise the fact that you are fascinated by um, the, the, the grisly and the darker side of, yes. of our criminal history as well. Now, you, you seem such a nice person. You don't, you know, you don't bite the heads <laughs> off chicken, chickens or anything like that. What, what, uh, what draws you to that? God, I don't you know. It's, it's funny you should say that because last night we do, like many other people at the moment, we're doing the Zoom quizzes for our friends. So we agreed. It was my, my, my husband's turn to do our Zoom quiz. And uh, we ended up with a round on serial killers and a round on sort of historical diseases. And my friends were clearly horrified. <laughs> <laughs> well, my husband and I thought were interesting subjects, but clearly um, considered <laughs> beyond macabre. I don't know where it came from. I mean, I, I assume it's my parents' fault in some way, because it always is, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've always just, I mean, I've always just been fascinated by, well, by the criminal justice system and the way society treats both criminals and victims. And that's why, you know, that, that ended up being my job as well as something that I write about. But yeah, I have ended up being very much interested by the macabre and the dark. But I do think partly, I mean, part of the reason I wrote my second novel, The Story Keeper, is because I wanted to write a dark fairy tale. And that was because I think I was totally obsessed with the darker fairy tales as a child. And they, that was what my mother read to me and showed me. And in fact, I say in a dedication to the story keeper that it's all her fault for introducing me to the bad fairies when I was very young. And I do think, oh, you still there? It's all right. Yes, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> the bad fairies have turned up. Um, so, yes, I think I did start off with sort of an early love of the, you know, the sort of the traditional fairy tales in the sense of, you know, the very grim literally fairy tales um and and celtic folklore as well which is you know the darkest of all to be honest yes. so i think that's partly where it comes from but i don't know i don't know altogether 
Well, I mean, I'm not condemning you for it, and we'll come on to the storykeeper in a minute. Um, because you know, as I, I sit here at my desk and I look at my bookcase, I, my eye falls on the first book that it falls on is the Encyclopedia of Modern Murder. Then, oh, you would have hang, done well in my quiz. You see. Yeah, Hangmen of Hangmen of England, the Triple Tree, <laughs> Lord oh, High exactly. Executioner, oh, <laughs> the Elizabethan <laughs> Underworld. <laughs> Sounds very similar so, to my bookshelf. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I, I can't condemn you, but interest in true crime is not. You know, there's a huge interest in true crime at the moment. Um, yeah. But that's nothing unusual, is it? Because that it does go back, and you've noted this uh, in, in articles. I mean, there was interest in true crime in, in the Dickensian area, and and before before then as well. Oh yeah, I mean, there's always been an interest in crime and and murderers and people who do terrible things. Because you know, we're interested in human psychology, and we're interested in you know the grisly and the gory. Well, all, you know, it's why people stop on motorways and. And look at crashes you know people have always been interested in that sort of thing and you know as i was mentioning the, the 19th century early 19th century is when they really started sort of capitalizing on that and that you know i talk about green acres hanging and but all of you know the hanging certainly if it was a notorious murder it was a jolly day out for all of the family and you know you'd go along and you'd buy a ballad sheet about the murder and you know you'd hope to get a bit of the hangman's rope at the end because that was good luck so you know this idea that true crime is interest in new crime is a new thing is wrong I think we've always been fascinated by it and I, I kind of almost think that we've become more fascinated at particularly worrying times because it's sort of a, a way of taking you out of your current misery and looking at something else even worse yes yes and of course Dickens was fascinated by it as well he was yes I mean he's yeah I mean he was obviously uh, you know fascinated by society as a whole and uh, and you know, a great campaigner, but he was particularly interested by criminals and how they were treated by society. And, you know, was an abolitionist at a time where, um, and in terms of um, hanging at a time where, you know, there were very conflicting arguments about it. So, yes, I mean, that's why I'm fascinated by his books as well, because you don't, you don't really think of his books as being crime books, but actually a lot of them are. If you look at, you know, Great Expectations, Bleak House, a lot of them are really crime and mystery novels. Yes, they are very, very much so. Yeah. And it's and it's, a, it's an argument I've made, uh, you know, many on many an occasion that, you know, most of, much of Dickens' work is uh, are crime novels. Yeah. Uh, as as much as the, of the Bible. Indeed, um, indeed. So, uh, now, so the, your second book, The Storykeeper, it was inspired by a, a real case from the Victorian era, wasn't it? It was, yes, yes. So, so as I say, I started off with this idea that I wanted to write a dark fairy tale. Um, so I started researching about fairies and then I kind of came, became interested in this idea of the supernatural being used as a way of concealing real crime. And I came across the case of the West Ham Vanishings, which was actually in the late 1880s. And it was a series of young people went missing. And the second of the girls to go missing, Eliza Carter, um, she supposedly reappeared just before her final disappearance and said she'd been taken by the fairies, which is obviously a rather peculiar thing to say. And then she disappeared again and she was never seen alive after that. Her, her dress was found in West Ham Park all the buttons missing but she was never seen again and that kind of gave me the idea for this story of 
girls going missing and people believing or being sort of made to believe that it is the work of some supernatural element when in fact it may be something else altogether and I, I, I in fact was going to do what I did with the unseeing initially and stick with it being the West Ham vanishings and stick with London and then the more research I did around it the, and the more messy because of course the other <laughs> there was a more fame more famous criminal in the 1880s um mainly Jack the Ripper and I you know various theories have been made that he in fact was to do with the West Ham vanishings and I knew that if I kept with a real story it would end up getting you know too confused and too lost and, and I'd already also had enough of London by then I mean I'd written <laughs> I'd just spent years writing this book um set in London I live in London I wanted to write about somewhere very different um and somewhere where they believed more in fairy lore and folklore in the mid 19th century. So that meant it was probably Ireland or, or, or Scotland or the Scottish islands. Um, and then I went to Skye and yeah. Skye is, as you know, beautiful, <laughs> a kind of otherworldly sort of place. Yeah. Um, so I decided to set it there. Just I mean, you know, all, all Scottish islands that I've been to, I've not visited them all, obviously, but uh, they, they are all magical in their own way. They but are, Sky, they are. Sky is just incredible. Yeah, it is. So, stunning place, yeah. So did you, I take it you, you went up to Sky? You, I did. Were you up on holiday or did you come up specifically? No, for the I, went, I went, because, I mean, that was the joy. As I said, I've got two young kids. So by setting it on Sky, I had the excuse to run away from them for several weekends which was wonderful. So I just stayed on my own in, in various cottages, a little cat in a, you know, bothied near Broadford or Brakish, which is where the, the novel is mainly set. Um, and just to try and sort of immerse myself in the landscape and understand it a bit better and write about it. And we did actually have a family holiday there, but it was a complete disaster because it rained the whole time, as it sometimes does on Sky. And there wasn't really any Wi-Fi where we were staying either. And my at the end of the week, my son just said to me, "We're never coming back to Sky again. It rains all the time, and there's no Wi-Fi." So that was that was a bit of a failure <laughs> as a family holiday. But my um, my own weekends walking there were glorious. Yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful place to visit. Yeah, it is, yeah. um, and uh, again, the storykeeper was was incredibly well received, and it it was long listed for the Highland Book Prize uh, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was nice. I mean, as you say, it's just always nice to have any kind of accolade, isn't it? Uh, but yeah. yeah, no, it was, it was. I mean, what I was most relieved about, to be honest, was that, and I'm sure there are some people on Sky who hate it, but I've had lots of lovely messages and um, emails from people who've, the, the, the bookshop on Sky, or several of the bookshops on Sky, I think have been great at, you know, recommending it. And so I've had lots of emails from people who actually live there saying that they've read it and really liked it, which is just amazing because, you know, I'm not from Sky. I'm a complete outsider. I felt like a bit of a, uh, you know, I wasn't sure about how people would feel about me writing about it, but generally the reception there has been really lovely, which is, yeah. you know, yeah. is a great thing. And it's, and it's a great book and Sky does, oh, does say does come alive uh, out of the woods but you know you write short stories as well yeah so I haven't written for any for ages I must yeah. do in fact that's yeah yeah, yeah. sorry carry but on. You, you, you blog on strange history I do <laughs> no surprises there <laughs> no <laughs> what exactly would you term strange history um just kind of the, the the weird things that I find that I find fascinating. So yeah, this is for the history girls who are a yeah. lovely bunch of female historians and writers, and we um 
yeah we all blog about various things every month um but and the things i did yeah the things i end up blogging about are generally on the rather on the darker or stranger side um yeah in fact i need to work out what i'm going to blog about next i might in fact for my next one i might do something about all the very there's so much amazing online stuff at the moment that you know people are putting out there I might do it about, you know, the various resources that are available. In fact, I don't know if you saw it yesterday on Twitter. There was, I think it's a Norwich Museum started off this um, tweet your creepiest exhibit. So all of the different museums were doing, <laughs> were tweeting their most peculiar dried mermaid or eyeball or whatever, which was, which was great. There's you know, some really amazing stuff. And then I think Greg Jenner's starting a new history podcast for children tomorrow on the BBC. Right. So there's, yeah, there's lots of great, great stuff going on. There, there is a there is a lot happening. So are you writing a new book just now? Uh, well, I was supposed to be. Um, I've completed. So I've recently finished my third one, which is set in France um, in 1750. So I recently finished that one. That one's currently with my agent. And I was supposed to have got started on my fourth one. But strangely, I haven't. I've actually decided to just be realistic about it. And all I'm going to do for the next, you know, however long we're in lockdown is the research. I think I'm going to do research and planning. But I'm not. I mean, have you been writing? Have you managed to do any writing? Uh, no. no. Um, I, I've, you know, hit a brick wall. I don't know what it is. I, I should be writing the third book in, in my Rebecca Connolly series. Yeah. I mean, it will it will be finished on time. I will do it. But uh, it has been it has been difficult. I mean, although I'm saying I'm used to the isolation, um, I think we're all, or most of us, are, are feeling something strange in the air with the exception of professor david wilson uh <laughs> who is apparently writing away great guns uh yeah. he tweeted the other day i i, I hear him i'm so jealous uh, <laughs> no, I, will back to it. I will get back to it um so the no, the, the, the one that you just finished is, is based on is it based on a, a real case in 1750 it is but again i've taken it even further from reality so it's based partly on a, a scandal known as the banishing children of paris of 750 1750 which is where children just start disappearing from the streets and, and no one knows where they're going so it's partly i partly use that but it's partly also the story of an automaton maker so a maker of strange mechanical animals um oh. and what happens when a young maid goes to work in their house essentially as a police spy so it's you know it's again it's using a real case but blending it with peculiar <laughs> peculiar things yeah. so yeah and, and who do, knows do what you know what happened to that sorry Karen. do you know what do you know what the fourth one will be what the fourth one will be about yes i do well i think i do i mean but now i don't know about you but i've just started wondering whether I'm writing the right thing at all at the moment. So my next one was supposed to be about um, poltergeist and fascist, basically. So a poltergeist in uh, that the visits a girl in 1930s Italy, which is, of course, the time of Mussolini. So that was what I was going to be writing about. And I've got all the research books and I kind of got, you know, the synopsis and I was doing the plan. But now I don't know everything. It just feels like everything's changed. I don't know whether I should be writing something sort of more upbeat. I don't. It's just difficult to know what people are going to want to read. And obviously, by the time our books come out, if they come out at all, in my case, it will be years down the line. So it's just really, yeah. I'm just really wondering what people, what publishers are going to want to be buying. Um, I mean, I think I'll continue with it, but I think I might also try and come up with another idea, maybe something funnier. 
um, just for my own mental health as well in terms of what I'm writing because I'm you know as you know I normally write dark stuff and that's fine but given we're living in pretty dark and desperate times I wonder whether maybe I should be writing something a little lighter. But as you say by the time they come out um, hopefully all of this will be behind us and life will be back to some reality. Yeah, and then I look at what I myself actually want to read at the moment, and I'm not really reaching for the comedy books. I'm, in fact, as I said, I'm reading, I'm reading detective fiction. I'm reading, um, you know, stuff that I'll find compelling. So, I mean, I guess I hope the desire for for crime fiction will will stay the same as it is. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very very peculiar time, and I mean, I find I found that I've been listening to audible to audio books a lot more than I have been reading, just because it's kind of nice to have someone telling you a story. Yeah, um, yeah. So you you mentioned um, the suspicions of Mister Witcher, and you've mentioned yeah. Alias Grace, the Margaret Atwood. Any other um, books of of that ilk that have influenced you, or that you you like, or you think are you know stand out in the genre? Yeah, I, I love. Well, I mean, yes, obviously, I love Margaret Atwood, but I also love um, Jane Harris. Her books, I think, are absolutely fantastic, and they are historical fiction, but they're also funny, which I think is quite rare. Um, so, The Observations is her first one, which is really fantastic and um but my favorite one of hers is Gillespie and I which is um also set in Scotland and it's just such a clever clever book and it's but it's dark but it's also clever and I just think I mean it's again it's one of those books that isn't really put in the crime genre it's more seen as sort of literary fiction I suppose but it really it is a crime novel um so I mean I guess she's been a strong influence on me as has Sarah Waters I you know the fingersmith is one of my favorite books ever Mm. and in fact I went back to it recently um and decided to give up on writing I just said no not really but I just you know there are some writers you read and you just think no matter what I do I will never get close to this I just think she's she's absolutely brilliant so I guess those that those have been the the strongest influences on me I'd say but you know I also read quite a lot of you know I read all, all sorts of things and I want to go back to because I I'm sure you're the same as me. The proofs we get sent, the, you know, the arcs, the copies mm. we get sent tend to be in the same genre that we write in. So I end up yeah. reading. But actually, I want to go back to reading all sorts of things, um, which is certainly what I used to do. Just get, you know, yeah. I read science fiction for years, for example. I'd quite like to read something completely different. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I, I long for the days when I can actually decide I'm going to read something for myself. Uh, yes, not, you know, that. not reading yes. it because somebody sent it to me or that they've asked me uh, to do it. I'm, I'm grateful that people do that. Um, but sometimes you just think, you know, I just want to sit down and read a book just for the fun of it. Uh, yes. I, I, the absolute hell of it. Is there any kind of case that you wouldn't touch? Any kind of what, sorry? Any kind of real life case that you wouldn't touch? I wouldn't touch anything recent, to be honest. Um, yeah. I think... I'm not saying that it can't be done. I know it has been done, but personally, I'd be very nervous about getting sued. <laughs> but also, yes. just yes. about um, you know when people are you know when people are living or whether relatives are still living, it becomes very tricky. Um, in fact, I was even with the unseeing. I remember because obviously it was based on this woman Sarah Gale. I was always quite worried that 
because I never managed to trace what happened to her son. I don't know what happened to her son. So I never knew whether her sort of her line had continued. I was always kind of worried that some of her relatives would contact me and say, how dare you write about what actually happened was that I was contacted on Twitter by a woman who said she was descended from James Greenacre, who right. is the man who was convicted with Sarah Gale. And she contacted me before she'd read the book. And she said, I'm so excited that you've you've written about my relative. And I said, oh, well, you may you may want to read the book and come back to me because you may not be that pleased with the way that he's represented. But in fact, she read it and she came back to me. She was absolutely delighted. She said, I too have murderous grey eyes, which it must be how I described it in the book. And she said that she said that her aunt Peggy, no, sorry, her granny Peggy had, um, had, had all sorts of information about James Greenacre and what a badden he was. So, for example, I include in the book the fact that supposedly his previous wives had died. And I got that from the newspapers of the time. But, you know, as of the newspapers of our own time, you're never sure whether these things are accurate. But she said, no, according to Granny Peggy, that had all been true, that he'd killed off his first two wives. Um, so no, she was very happy to have a murderer in the family. <laughs> so it was fine. But I do think if you, you know, if you're writing anything more recent, it, it's a slightly more dicey. I agree. Because you, you might not know, but I, I came from uh, writing true crime into fiction. And yeah. uh, I, I, as, as the true crime books progressed, I went further and further back into history in, in, yeah. in a way because I, I really didn't want to talk about uh, write about the, the more modern cases and turning real life tragedy into the entertainment. Uh, which which got to me yeah, eventually. Yeah, that's you've, yeah. You've kind of got to be. I mean, it, I mean, it, it can be done. And there, in fact, there are lots of stories that need to be told. And I, I mean, of I've been. Asked, I don't think I'll do it. But I, you know, I've I've acted for families whose whose loved ones have died in custody or have, you know died at the hands of the police, and who want me to write their story or who want to write their story. And I kind of think those are stories that do need to be told. Yes. Um, so sometimes, if it's done right, you know, it's 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 great. But obviously. And then I've said to the, those families, I said, kind of, the, you know, you, you need, need to know what you want to write and you probably need to write it yourself. Um, but, yeah. But I, I mean, I, oh, sorry, on you go. No, no, carry on. I, I find that the historical cases are far more interesting. Well, um, I do, too. Um, yeah. Yeah, because just because I think sort of they open up a window on society, don't they? It's um, if you, you can if you look at how. The society of the time has treated the criminal and the victim. It tells you a lot about what was going on at that time in the way that you might not get out of a sort of normal history book, if you if you know what I mean. So, you know, I find the historical stuff absolutely fascinating. And and of course, it was all sort of much. So the in the unseeing, I read the uh, the trial, but it was only two days, two days. And you get all of the information, all of the witnesses. Yes. You get their own voice. It's fantastic. Whereas, of course, now you have a murder trial and it goes on for months. So, yes, um, it does. I mean, that, that's the incredible thing. I mean, the, the, the trials were over so quickly and the coverage of them was so detailed, you know, was, in, yeah. in, in newspapers. Absolutely. With pictures incredible. as well. I love the pictures. With pictures. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you obviously know your subject and you're enthusiastic about it. Do you, do you ever fancy doing, you know, like a, you know, a TV series on historical crimes you know, and you could front it? Yeah, I'm up for that. If anyone wants to approach me about yeah. funding it, yeah, no, I mean, I'd love to do something yeah. like that. It's not really something I'd ever considered. Uh, but yeah, uh -huh. it'd be great fun, wouldn't it? Or even just, yeah, podcast or, um, you yeah. know, I was thinking, I was, when I was talking to this family, one just to tell their story, I was saying, well, you could do it sort of, you know, serial type podcast. Those are always, you know, fascinating ways of getting, because we always love the stories, don't we? We love the human stories. And that's why true yes. crime 
is partly so successful, isn't it? We want to know what yeah. happened. We want to know why people did what they did. Yeah. Well, if any if any TV producers or executives yeah. happen to be listening, Anna not, is not up right for now front. because my hair is too bad. So. Well, no, we need we we'd need to wait till after lockdown anyway. But <laughs> let's get Anna out there. Let's make a star. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe with a wig. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get you a hairdresser. You'll be fine. Okay. You'll be fine. Anna, thank you very much for the time. This was absolutely fascinating. Really oh, grateful. Oh, no, it was lovely you talking time. to you. Thanks for having me on. So, just for the the readers, the Unseeing and the Storykeeper by Anna Matsola are well worth. Uh, they are available now, and they are well worth reading. So, Anna, thanks again. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you. And lovely to speak to you. Thank okay, you. Take care. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Spooks, in which Douglas Skelton was in conversation with Anna Matsola. Spooks is a Houses of Steel production. <laughs>